Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing on in our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, last week we looked at uh, Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7, which is the first letter of seven letters that uh, Jesus dictates to John uh, to have written and sent to the churches. And this is actually something that's important to remember is that every one of these individual letters to an individual church is sent to the churches plural. Just like you know, uh, all of our New Testament epistles that go to particular churches are for the church throughout all of time. All of these seven letters, which are sent to historical churches, uh, are sent to every church. They're for everyone. So there's lessons that we can learn about how God uh, evaluates and deals with other people in other churches as well. So this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at Revelation 2, verses 8 through 17. We're going to look at two churches, the church in Smyrna, and the church in Pergamum. This is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, this letter to Smyrna is sort of full of commendation and praise. Smyrna, historically, we know it was a big city. It was a beautiful city. Uh, it was favored by Rome, so it was highly regarded uh, in sort of the empire. And Smyrna felt strong loyalties to Rome as well. Part of the question, of course, in Revelation, uh, as the book unfolds, is where does your loyalty lie? Are you following the beast or are you following the lamb? Are you following the dragon or are you following God? Are, are you following the world or are you following Christ? And here, the question is, in some ways, is your loyalty to Rome, to the world, to the powers that be, or is your loyalty 
to Jesus Christ. And so you'll remember in chapter one, you have this inaugural vision of Jesus, and there's all different elements that are used to describe him. We mentioned that those elements are picked up throughout these seven letters to these churches. The one that's picked up here is that he is the first and the last. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And so the reminder is, in your cultural context, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who is ruling and reigning. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so you align yourselves with Jesus because there's absolutely no one like him. He is superior and transcendent. And that's not only true sort of ontologically, that is in terms of his own being and nature and character and person, but he is also greater than everyone uh, because he himself has actually died and conquered death. I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. And of course, and this is, as you know, the fundamental Christian hope, that there is life, that there is eternal life because of the nature of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross to atone for sin, and his triumphant resurrection that he has been raised to life. He died. He actually died. But he lives again. Now, anyone who is the first and the last and who died and came to life again is relatively important. And so for Jesus, you realize that Jesus Christ is extremely important. I, that, that's, language fails, of course. Uh, the understatement, you know, only takes you so far, even in terms of irony. Like, like, how do you explain the greatness and grandeur and transcendent majesty of the one who was the first and the last who died and lives again? Well, you, you, there's just no category. There's no words. There's nothing you can say or do to ever communicate his greatness. But it's his greatness, the first and the last and the one who died and lives again, it's that reality of him which makes the next little bit so incredible. The next words out of his mouth are, I know your afflictions. That is, the one who is the first and the last who, who died and lives again actually knows the sorrow and the suffering that we experience. And he cares. It's like in Isaiah where, where God says, listen, I, the, the highest heavens cannot contain me. Do I not fill heaven and earth? You know, even the highest heavens can't contain me. I, I dwell in a high and holy place. But also with the one who's who's meek and humble and broken in spirit and in heart. I know your afflictions. I know your tribulations. I know your trials. The one who reigns having conquered death knows your suffering, your sadness, and your tears. I know your afflictions and your poverty. 
We know for the early church, this may be linked here, of course, that you know, a lot of Christians in the early church in waves of persecution, some were executed, some were imprisoned, some were beaten, some had their goods confiscated. The book of Hebrews talks about that. Uh, some lost their jobs, they lost their places of employment uh, because they wouldn't sacrifice her to the to the guild deities. I mean, you can imagine, you know, if, if you're today, if you're an electrician, and the electrician, the so the, the electrician's guild has a, has a patron deity, and so you have to sacrifice to the patron deity to ensure blessing, or you know, when you're adjusting currents or whatever it is that you do as an electrician, um, and then all of a sudden you don't, you won't sacrifice to that god, that little token. And it's sort of a meaningless ritual to a lot of people, but it's what you do. And if you listen, if you're not going to sacrifice to the deity, then then you're you're not going to be bringing favor and blessing uh, to the guild, to the work. In fact, you may be bringing wrath and judgment and anger from the god. And so what you do is is the guild fires you. You just can't work anymore. So a lot of times, poverty was actually connected to faith. People lost money because of faith. And that's on top of the, sort of the general widespread poverty there was to begin with. I know your poverty, and the Greek word here actually is not just a little bit poor, it, it, it denotes extreme poverty, this is grinding poverty. I know all about your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, here's one of those amazing statements. Because it shows the real value that Jesus has for things. At one level, it it is right. Jesus says, listen, I know your poverty. And again, the word is extremely strong. You are dirt, poor, destitute. you're, You're barely keeping body and soul together. But you're rich. Whatever he means by you are rich does not deny the real material physical poverty. But what it means is that in another level of analysis, they are not just kind of rich. And this is the thing about Scripture. You need to understand this. These are not platitudes to try to get you to buck up a little bit. This is not saying, well, listen, you're actually really miserably poor, but let's pretend you're rich. No, it's, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. You are rich. Because you have treasures in heaven. You're really rich where it actually matters. You're genuinely rich. In the same way that if you're a believer, uh, you might feel, uh, sometimes you might feel lonely. You might, you might feel unloved or unwanted. But you're really loved. You're really, really loved by God and by Jesus. You're, you're not pseudo-loved. It's not, it's not a sort of a, a love off the side, on the side to try to make up for it. It's, it's real, genuine love. You are loved. You are rich. But you're also slandered. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Listen. Everyone in the world might believe the accusations against your character, but Jesus knows the truth. On the other hand, everyone might believe much better of you than you deserve, but Jesus knows the truth. 
These people claim to be Jews, but they're not. I mean, this is probably a reference. You kind of get the same sort of thing in, in the book of uh, Romans, where not everyone <clears throat> who sort of claims to belong to the people of God really belongs to the people of God. Or, you know, rejection of Jesus indicates, John 8, you know, you reject Jesus, it really shows that you're not Abraham's child. You're not Abraham's seed. Jesus knows all about it. He, he really does. He knows about all of our suffering and sorrow and trials. He knows about the slander. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Now, this is really tough. Because Jesus says, feel the the difficulty of this. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Do not be afraid of what you might suffer. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. You are going to suffer. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Persecution for 10 days. 10 days is um, sort of a a complete period of time. It's it's not like, oh, just a week and a half. Don't worry about it. Uh, It's it's a bounded time. God is in control. It won't go on forever, but the time will still be terrible. This is... You will be persecuted. You will be afflicted. You will suffer. Suffering is the right word. But but suffering, if you are a believer, does not go on forever. It may not be alleviated in this life. But it can't can't follow you into eternity. And and there may even be some blessed relief now. It it may be just a period of time now, a finite, uh, sort of circumscribed uh, period of time. So be faithful, even to the point of death. Even if it kills you, even if they kill you. Even if, even if the people who attack you totally destroy you in, in body or, or spirit or, or emotions or psyche. If your mind and body break down, continue to be faithful, even to the point of death. And if you are I will give you life as your victor's crown. Sometimes you talk about the crown of life. Here, life is the crown. I will give you life as your victor's crown because you've won, because you were faithful, even though it killed you. Life is your crown. Well, how can that be? How, how can life be your crown if you're dead? Well, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. In Revelation 21.8, we're told that the cowardly are amongst those who go to the lake of fire. Here you're told, you may experience death for the sake of your faith. Your faith may actually result in your death. But your faith keeps you from the second death. Your first death for your faith yields life 
Life is your crown forever. You are the victor. And you will never be hurt at all by the second death. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you suffer for doing what is right, even to the point of absolute destruction, you will have life. This does not mean that we go courting martyrdom. It does not mean that, that we go seeking to suffer. But it does mean that we recognize that there is, there is life, full, abundant, eternal life. And that can never be taken away from us by anyone. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Pergamum was the center, in, in so the imperial center, for the uh, uh, imperial cult. That is, this is where you had to swear that Caesar was Lord. And so the imperial cult was, was swearing that Caesar is Lord. Pergamum was sort of the, the center of that. And Pergamum was the place, because of that, where Christians were most likely to die. That is, uh, because they wouldn't say that the Caesar was, was Lord, they were most likely to be executed. So Jesus here says, listen, remember, I'm the one with a sharp double-edged sword. You know, the, the, the military executioner has a sword, but I have a sword too, proceeding from my mouth. You remember in chapter 1, verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus is the one whose word has the power of life and death. And he says, listen, I know where you live. Now, this is not a matter of, I know your address. It's, I know your circumstances. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. You see, very often we tend to think of sort of the caricature of, you know, from the cartoons is that Satan sort of is, is the master of hell. That Satan is sort of like the, the boss of hell, living in hell and sending out all of his demons. It's not even remotely the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that Satan is, a, is, is active in the world. And, and Satan doesn't want to be in hell any more than anyone else does. That's where he will be sent. That's where he will be confined and punished. No. Jesus says to the, to the Christians in Pergamum, I know where you live. Where, where you live is where Satan rules. Satan's throne is not in hell. Satan's throne is on earth. Now, when you get to Revelation 4, you will see that in heaven there's another throne with someone sitting on it. So Satan's throne is on earth. God's throne is in heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. You remember the Psalms. The earth is God's footstool. That's what he puts his feet on. You know, and, and so Satan's throne is here in Pergamum, but, but the whole world is nothing but the footstool of God. You live in a wicked city, yet you remain true to my name. It's hard living in a wicked city. It's hard living in a wicked time in history. 
yet they live up to their responsibility. That is, they, they, they do live up to commitment to Jesus Christ, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. <clears throat> Antipas here, as a faithful witness, this is where we talked a few weeks ago, the word um, that we have translated as witness here, or martyr, it's the same word. To, to be a martyr was originally just to be a witness. But then so many Christians were, were put to death for their faith, for their witness, that witnessing and execution kind of became linked. And so the word martyr undergoes this shift. Martyr originally just means witness. Then it becomes a witness who dies for their witness. And so here we probably have one of the first usages of Antipas, my faithful witness or my faithful martyr, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Again, that reminder, the reason that these believers are being executed is because they live where Satan lives. Now, that is really positive. I mean, the, the, the death, well, living, after I was, was going to say, that's really positive. I want to be very clear. It's not really positive to live where Satan lives. It's not really positive when people are being executed. But it is positive when you are so committed to Jesus that nothing moves you. They're faithful despite those realities around them. Nevertheless, they're not perfect. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Know, you need, I think we need to start recognizing if we were a church that were faithful to Jesus, even when our church members were being executed for their faith, we would probably think we're the greatest church in all of the world. You know, if we're willing to, to be martyred for our faith, to be executed for our faith, what could be better? How could you improve? Well, no matter, no matter how mature and advanced you are, Jesus goes to work. There's still some things. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. I mean, you're willing to die for your faith, but there's some things to work on. Perfection's hard. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, these are probably connected somehow. I mean, the reference to Balaam is... In, in numbers, uh, Balaam convinces some, uh, of, of some women to help ensnare the Israelites. And so there's sort of this um, concatenation of idolatry and sexual immorality. And those two very, very, very frequently go together throughout Scripture. I mean, not, not every instance of sexual immorality is connected to idolatry in a literal sense, in, in terms of pagan false worship of other gods. I mean, you could argue that sexual immorality is idolatrous in another sense, always. But, but probably here, this group, metaphorically, like Balaam, they're, they're enticing people into idolatry, to pagan worship, and uh, sort of the accompanying sexual practices that often went with types of pagan uh, paganism. The Nicolaitans, again, we don't know much about this group. They were probably like that. Again, some sort of connection between idolatry and sexual uh, licentiousness. 
Now in Ephesus, they couldn't tolerate the Nicolaitans and God uh, was pleased with, it, with them for that. So what you need to do is you're tolerating this stuff. You need to stop. Repent, therefore. Amazing. Tolerance can take you so far that you need to start repenting for your tolerance. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is ready to go to war for some things. His weapon is his word wielded with power. Repent, therefore, I will come and fight with the sword of my mouth. You've just gone from your, you've remained true to my name in the city of Satan, even when people are being executed for their faith in me. Well done. You are a church where people will die for me. If you don't get this right, I'm going to come and fight against you myself. You do not expect that difference. I mean, so you, you, you do not expect that juxtaposition. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The hidden manna has been interpreted in a variety of ways. Uh, There was a legend that the prophet Jeremiah um, had taken the, had a jar of manna and hid it in the ark of the covenant. The ark was being hidden because it was right before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so the, the ark, of course, we know is lost. So the, the jar of manna is lost. And there was a legend that when the Messiah came, the Messiah was going to reveal the location of the ark and, and bring this manna as well. And so it would be a symbol to be able to participate in the hidden manna would be a symbol of the messianic age and the messianic conquering. That's, that's one possible line of interpretation. Others identify Christ as the bread from heaven, the true manna. All believers feast on him, but he's hidden away from unbelievers. Others say, no, it's just very generic. It is a sign of God's provision. God specially provided man in the wilderness for his people in difficult places. He will nourish us as well, in contrast to this paganism. The white stone, likewise, uh, I mean, the, well, the white stone new name idea has a couple dozen interpretations. One, uh, or some of them, is the, are these. One is that a white stone sometimes was given as a ticket to admission to a party. And so, you know, if you were, you were having a big shindig or whatever it is that they had in the first century, you could, you could give invited guests, you know, a little token. And when they come to the door, they could show that they had been invited. And a white stone was one of those sorts of tokens that was used. Other thing, the white stone is more like a, like a stone, like a jewel. And just like the stones on the priest's ephod. Uh, the, the, the stones that the priest carried were engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. Now, whatever it is, uh, you know, the hidden manna or the new or, or the white stone, it's obviously a privilege and a blessing because it's given to the one who is victorious. This is a good thing no matter what it is. 
Now, on the white stone, there's a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, what is this new name? Is it, some people think it's Christ's name, that, that the, the, the name Jesus receives is written on this stone. Others, I think this is probably more plausible, believe that it's the, uh, the believer's name, but it's a new name. Just like when, when Jacob's name is changed to Israel, or Abram's name is changed to Abraham. God has changed the believer. And so when we go into the new heavens and new earth, it's like we're given a new, we're given a new driver's license. You look at the driver's license, it has a different name on it, because you're different, you're changed. You've been refined by God. He's built up your heart. You're new. You've been made new. Continuity and discontinuity. 